0: Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we're traveling back to the Middle East in the 1950s and to the time when the United States conducted its first major military intervention in the area, in Lebanon. What were the origins of the Lebanese crisis? and what led the Americans to intervene? Looking back today, did it make a difference? We discuss these questions as we head to the city of Beirut in 1958. It's mid-July, the height of summer, and newly arrived American troops are being greeted by locals on the beach. Among them are women sunbathing in bikinis and street vendors who try to sell the soldiers food and cigarettes. Teenage boys hang around curious about the American Marines' military equipment. This image may not be what you think of when you picture the Middle East. You might almost imagine you were somewhere in France or Italy. In fact, at this time, Lebanon is heavily westernized. For centuries now, it's been a place where free speech and academic thought thrive. But things are changing. The American Marines' arrival has been sparked by conflict between pro-Christian and pro-Muslim forces, and it's all happening against the backdrop of the Cold War. Here's a news clip from the time, including President Eisenhower discussing the arrival of the U.S. troops.
1: In the wake of the stunning Iraqi revolt, America intervenes in the explosive Mideast crisis. United States Marines pour ashore in Lebanon. Their mission to protect American lives and property and to bolster the rebel-threatened Beirut regime. Curious and sometimes cheering crowds gather in welcome, making this one of the strangest operations of its kind in the history of the Corps. Overhead fighter bombers of the 6th Fleet provide combat-ready sky cover for the Leathernecks. The temperature is in the 90s, tough going for troops in full combat pack, and enterprising ice cream vendors seize a grand opportunity. But despite its strange aspect, this operation is a gamble for high stakes, and the initial 1,800-man force moves swiftly to secure the Beirut airport its initial goal. Later, their number almost doubled by a second wave. The Marines moved into Lebanon's capital city, carefully avoiding conflict and clashes with rebel groups. By a dramatic show of strength, the United States took a major step to restore stability in strife-torn Lebanon, drawing a clear line to bar further aggression in the ominously
2: smoldering Middle East. I am well aware the landing of United States troops in Lebanon could have some serious consequences. That is why this step was taken only after the most serious consideration and broad consultation. I have, however, come to the sober and clear conclusion that the action was essential to the welfare of the United States. It was required to support the principles of justice and international law upon which peace and a stable international order depend. That, and that alone, is the purpose of the United States. We are not actuated by any hope of material gain or by any emotional hostility against any person or any government. Our dedication is to the principles of the United Nations Charter and to the preservation of the independence of every state. That is the basic pledge of the United Nations.
0: Long before the 20th century, the small country of Lebanon, found south of Syria and north of Israel, had a fascinating history. It's geographically part of the Arab world, but its location on the shores of the Mediterranean means that for thousands of years it's been a hub for commerce with Europe. Some of the oldest settlements in human history are found there, including the ancient Phoenician ports of Tyre, Sidon and Byblos, believed to date from at least 5,000 BC. At different points in history, this area has been ruled by both Muslim and Christian nations. It was once part of the Roman and Byzantine empires, but it fell under Muslim rule in the 7th century AD. In the Middle Ages, it became part of the Crusader states, as the French fought to reclaim former Christian Byzantine territories, and in the 16th century, it was incorporated into the sprawling Ottoman Empire. After that empire fell, following the First World War, the area officially came under French rule, and the modern state of Lebanon was born. Lebanon's population is diverse, And since the 7th century, the group known as the Maronites have made their presence felt in the country. They are an ethnic group native to northern Syria, and their religion is a form of Catholicism based around the teachings of a hermit monk called Saint Maron. Like many other dissident groups, they found safe haven in the snow-capped Lebanese mountains, which offered a degree of protection from the outside world. The Maronites intermarried with the local population and with other groups that arrived in the area. During the Crusades, they re-established contact with the Catholic Church in Rome, and following the Ottoman conquest of the Levant, they managed to keep their religion alive and they even retained their own language. The Maronites thrive in the 18th and 19th centuries, as Lebanon grows more prosperous and trade between Lebanon and European countries, particularly France, increases. Both Catholics and Protestants from European countries are interested in this area. The Jesuit priests found a university there, and the growth of Christianity and the blossoming of liberal Western ideas begin to cause conflicts. The country's other major ethnic groups are the Sunni Muslims, who identify far more with the Arab world, the Shia Muslims, and another minority known as the Druze, who follow a religion based on Islam and Greek philosophy. There's a massacre of Maronites by the Druze in 1860. The French intervene to help the Maronites, and with French support, Mount Lebanon becomes an autonomous Christian region ruled by a governor. This arrangement continues up until the time of World War I, when the Ottoman Empire tries to reassert control. Under French rule, Maronite Christians and Europeans coexist with the Muslim population. But France leaves Lebanon in 1943, following their defeat during World War II. The different religious and ethnic groups present in Lebanon try to put aside their differences and band together to create a power-sharing pact. The Maronites agree to accept that Lebanon is an Arab-affiliated state and promise that they will not seek Western intervention or integration with the West. For their part, Lebanon's Muslim communities agree they will not seek unification with Syria. Under the details of the pact, the President must always be Maronite Christian, the Prime Minister, Sunni Muslim, the Parliamentary Speaker, Shia Muslim, the Deputy Prime Minister, Greek Orthodox, and the Chief of Staff must be Druze. This complicated arrangement is a way of tamping down any simmering religious and ethnic conflict and making sure everyone is heard. But it's not long before things start to slowly fall apart. Both internal grievances and tensions and events in the wider Middle East begin to affect Lebanon. Lebanon provides support to Palestine and takes in refugees following the first Arab-Israeli war, gaining the country the hostility of Israel. In the 50s, Pan-Arab nationalism is also becoming more and more popular across the Arab world. In 1956, Egyptian leader General Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal, disrupting western interests in the region.
3: From Alexandria, Egypt, Mobitone News brings you the latest incident to upset the chancelleries of the free world. President Nasser delivering his fiery speech telling of his nationalization of the Suez Canal. A seizure from private interests that the Egyptian says is his answer to the West for refusing to finance the Aswan Dam. It's a situation fraught with implications. But undeterred, President Nasser raises his country's flag to symbolize his action. And although his followers hail him and carry him triumphantly on their shoulders, in London, Paris and Washington, the fate of the strategic waterway causes grave concern. A lifeline between the East and West, the free world does not want it dependent on the Egyptian government, which sends U.S. Undersecretary of State Murphy to London, where he is interviewed on the crisis by British pressmen.
1: Have you brought any plan with you for action against Egypt? Uh, I can only say that we are going to uh, engage in these conversations with our friends here and explore the matter. Uh, we haven't got to the point as yet of specific proposals.
2: What do you think of the idea of using force to
1: protect Western projects in the Middle East? Really no comment on that at this stage. Does your government now regret its decision not to help finance the Dam? We have no regrets, no.
0: Acting without America's knowledge, France and Britain attempt to take the canal with Israel's support. This is the last time these two European powers act without the support of the UN or America on a global stage, and America publicly censures both countries. Although Nasser is generally considered to have lost in military terms, his willingness to stand up for the Arab world during the Suez Canal crisis did a lot for his reputation in the Middle East. Following the crisis, Britain and France ultimately lost much of their influence in this area. In the end, it's the Soviet Union that funds Nasser's Aswan Dam, the development Nasser hopes will make Egypt a modern, industrialized country. For his part, General Nasser sees Lebanese President Kamil Shamoun's support for the Baghdad Pact as an obstacle to his Arab nationalist ideas. Unlike most other leaders of the Arab world at the time, Shamoun does not break off Lebanon's diplomatic relations with Great Britain and France following the Suez Canal crisis, and politicians both within and outside of Lebanon take note of this. As a leader, Shamoun tends to go his own way, acting as a mediator rather than taking sides. But now he's being increasingly pressured to decide whether he wants to support the West or the Arab world. He grows even more unpopular after allegations of election rigging and skirmishes break out across the country. Then, the newly formed United Arab Republic, comprising Egypt and Syria, forms an alliance with Sunni Lebanese Prime Minister Rashid Karami. Tension builds between Lebanon's ethnic groups and in 1958, a prominent pan-Arab nationalist newspaper editor is assassinated. Insurrection breaks out and the alarmed President Shamoun urges America to help. At first, America is reluctant to get involved but in July, the pro-Western Hashemite regime is deposed in Iraq. The United States wrongly assumes that NASA and the Soviet Union are responsible for this, and in the end, they make the call to send troops to Lebanon to try to prevent further Soviet activity in the region. The mission becomes known as Operation Blue Bat. Nuclear weapons are prepared for transport to the region, and 70 boats are waiting in the Mediterranean but the American troops are not involved in the Lebanese conflict. Their mere presence is enough to calm the situation down. According to some sources, America loses only three men, one to hostile fire and two who drown while swimming. Operation Blue Bat lasts about three months, with American forces withdrawing in October of 1958. During the crisis, between four and seven thousand Lebanese people are killed and the economy grinds to a standstill. As the insurrection tapers away, military leader General Fuad Chehab takes power. He's a prominent Christian figure who is also popular in the Lebanese Sunni Muslim community. In the short term, the change of regime seems positive for Lebanon. General Shihab makes a concerted effort to help the country's marginalised Muslim population, giving them greater political representation in his government and focusing on providing assistance to more neglected areas. His enthusiasm for reform and desire for equality make him a very popular leader. He's even asked by his supporters to change the country's constitution so he can return for a second term. But in 1964, he declines and backs the candidacy of another politician, Charles Helou. Helou is unfortunately less successful at controlling the tensions brewing in Lebanon. Both the oil boom of the 1970s and the Israel and Palestine situation create a backdrop of instability. In 1970, another Maronite ruler is elected president. Suleiman Frangé. Franje attempts to undo some of Chihab's reforms, and in the process, he alienates both Muslims and Christians. Meanwhile, the Palestine Liberation Organization, led by Yasser Arafat, is growing strong in Jordan, and it's been linked to assassination attempts on the Jordanian king. In 1970, Jordan begins attacking Palestinian refugee camps where Fideen fighters are based. Displaced once more, the Palestinians make their way to the rugged mountains of Lebanon, seeing the country as a place of refuge. By 1973, about one-tenth of the population is Palestinian, and this group of people sympathises with the more alienated Sunni and Shia populations. As Lebanese President Frangé begins to lose control, militias affiliated to Lebanon's different religious groups begin to emerge. Yet again, the precarious balance of power is changing. Jihab, who saved the country in 1958, dies two years before the Civil War of 1975, the one that will transform the landscape of Lebanon for decades to come. Here's a brief clip from Tim's TV, taken from a documentary filmed in 1976, a year into the conflict.
4: This was once the richest part of the richest city in the Middle East. Now it's the front line of the war in the Lebanon. Buildings where last year the money-makers of the Western world exchanged their millions are now the barricades of Beirut. The war has lasted 12 months. It has ruined a country and destroyed a nation. There is supposed to be a ceasefire in Lebanon, but it means nothing. There have been 28 ceasefires, and each of them has been followed by even fiercer fighting. It's now a year since Lebanon's social tensions finally and inevitably exploded into war. Until last year, This corner of Beirut was crammed with clubs, bars and brothels. Now the music stopped and the girls have fled. Instead, the streets shudder under shellfire, and snipers pick off the unwary with a single bullet. So far, the civil war has taken 17,000 lives. In the latest ceasefire, at least 50 and sometimes 100 people have died each day. The hotels which made Beirut the tourist center of the Middle East are now strategic forts, one in street by street floor-by-floor battle. No one will ever know how many heroes died here in the Holiday Inn. The battle lasted three days and three nights, and there were no prisoners at the end. The blood of many wasted young lives has stained the gaudy opulence of Beirut's biggest hotel forever.
0: In the years that follow, both Syria and Israel intervene in the war. Syria supporting the country's Muslim population and Israel backing the Maronites. Foreign intervention in the country continues through the 1980s and the former wealthy multicultural hub descends into a war society, characterized by smuggling, extortion and a thriving arms and drugs trade. After 15 years and the loss of more than 100,000 lives, The war ends in 1990, but that's definitely not the end of the strife in Lebanon. In 2006, Hezbollah launched an attack against Israel from southern Lebanon, leading to yet more conflict. To this day, the country struggles economically in the aftermath of war, with the threat of civil unrest and conflict with other countries never far away. In 2020, the country experiences yet another blow after a blast caused by poorly stored ammonium nitrate at the port of Beirut claims hundreds of lives and injures thousands. Going back more than 50 years to the incident of 1958, which features in Billy Joel's song, was the military intervention of the U.S. when the Marines turned up to the beach necessary And did it really change anything? The answer might depend on who you speak to. Some believe that America's paranoia about Soviet influence made existing sectarian tensions worse and contributed to the country's disintegration. Others emphasize the positive, inclusive aspects of General Fuad Chehab's reign. There's no doubt that politics in this area continue to be complex and deeply fraught. And in terms of its impact on the West, the military intervention in Lebanon in 1958 is believed to have set a precedent for further American military operations in the Middle East in the later 20th and 21st centuries, including Iraq and Afghanistan. Despite the ongoing turbulence and heartbreak that Lebanese people still experience after decades of conflict, they remain passionate about their country and about creating a better future. We end this podcast with some music from legendary Lebanese singer Farouz, singing in the 1970s about the turmoil in her country. Her song is entitled, "Baybak Ya Lebanon which, translated into English, means I love you, Lebanon. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us next time as we head back to Europe post-World War II and explore the life and times of the resistance hero and later French leader, Charles de Gaulle. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZPods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back
3: next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.